Have you ever known someone who seemed to swing from one extreme to the other? I think most of us have. I mean, tonight's the Super Bowl, and I think we've seen people who would say they were a fan of one team, and suddenly they swing to the other side, and they're a bandwagon fan, and they're suddenly, hey, my team's in. I, I did notice Miguel's sweatshirt, and he's uh, protesting uh, the, the, uh, uh, that his Steelers are not in. Uh, but hey, dude, your Steelers have been in like six times, or they've won it six times. I mean, so you're, you're good. All right, but, but you've seen the individual who... Uh, you know, they're, they're an avowed Democrat, and they will stay up until the wee hours of the night fighting against someone who, who is, you know, right wing. And, and then it seems almost overnight, they're, they're suddenly wearing red, they're holding tea parties, you know, they're listening to Rush Limbaugh. You know, they swing from one extreme to the other. Or, or the girl who posts like 14 pictures on Instagram every day, selfies of her and her boyfriend, just talking about how much she loves him, how wonderful he is. She'll never find anyone else like him. And, and then he breaks up with her and she swings to the other extreme. I'm never dating again. And usually she posts a picture in a week and she's got a new boyfriend. You know, but you know, they, they swing from one extreme to the other. Maybe you've had friends like this. Maybe you went to school with someone like this. Maybe you live with someone like this. Maybe you are this, but, but we each know someone that swings from one extreme to the other. Well, last week when I began uh, the message, I talked about a theological extreme. I, I talked about a group of people that start their theology with Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is this section of scripture where sin enters into the story. And we see sin infect mankind and we talked about how if your theology starts with Genesis 3, you end up viewing humans as just these sinful, vile creatures, which could have some ramifications upon your relationships. It could lead you to not be very trusting, because, I mean, how can you trust these sinners? You could be very cynical, because, I mean, they're just these grave sinners. Or even worse, you become very, very judgmental. So we went to the start of the story. We went to Genesis 1 and 2. We, we saw that not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but he created humans. And when he created mankind, he placed his image upon them. That they would have this will and this intellect and this personality, these emotions. They were just different than the rest of creation, placed there to help care for it. That image that was placed upon man was Jesus. Mankind was supposed to love like Jesus and live like Jesus lived. And so mankind was to bear this image. Well, there are some people that would have heard my message last week, and they would have loved it. They loved Genesis 1 and 2. They would, were so, probably so encouraged when I talked about how it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your income level. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. You are human. You are loved. You matter to God. You have immense value. And they probably would have left last week wanting to just go have one great big group hug with the entire world. But now this week we come to Genesis 3. And are we really going to talk about this? Are we really going to talk about sin? Like they get a little uncomfortable. Because while they do not start their theology at Genesis 3, they want to swing to the other side and they want to eliminate Genesis 3. But if you eliminate Genesis 3, you get rid of the rest of the Bible. Because the rest of the scriptures show you all these mistakes throughout history that mankind has made because of their sin. 
You, you get rid of all the sections that tell you about how to live your life, to love like Jesus loved, to live like Jesus lived. And the reason it gives us those instructions is because of sin. And if you eliminate Genesis 3, you totally eliminate the need for Jesus and the cross. He doesn't need to come. He doesn't need to die. But if we're going to understand his story, it means we have to go to this uncomfortable chapter. We have to look at this idea that humans are sinful. But guess what? Right in the middle of this depressing chapter is hope. Two times we are going to see Jesus very vividly portrayed. We are going to see his sacrifice for us. And believe it or not, I think some of us are actually going to walk out of here with some hope and encouragement. And we are going to actually want to worship God even after looking at a depressing chapter like Genesis 3. So let's open up our Bibles. If you brought a Bible, open it up there to Genesis 3. Smartphones are allowed. So if you have that, go ahead and open that up to Genesis 3 as well. If you don't have a Bible on your smartphone, I encourage you to download one. Sorry, they don't have Wi-Fi in the Veterans Post yet, uh, so you can't tap into that. But you'll have to use your own data right now. If you want a paper copy after the worship gathering, totally feel free to stop by and pick up a, a, a version. We've got two different translations on the table. We want people to have a Bible that they will use every single day. We've got some reading plans back there to help you get into the Bible daily. We would love to see you be in the scriptures every day. Uh, in fact, we have a uh, reading plan right now, uh, the His Story reading plan. If you grab this bookmark and you do this, you're going to read about one chapter a day. There's a couple of catch-up days in there. Uh, but if you read this, you're going to end up reading the section of scripture that we're going to study each Sunday before we get to it. So you will have read it during the week. And then when you come here, you're going to hear it talked about even more. And I think it might help enhance your, uh, your learning and your growth. So if you're not reading the Bible daily, I'd encourage you, at least grab this. This is an easy way to start. Five minutes a day, one chapter, read it, and just watch what God can do. All right, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Before we can get to Genesis 3, though, I need to grab a couple of things out of chapter 2 because they kind of really help set the stage for, for chapter 3. The first one is back in verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were at a work site, a job, or if I were a kid growing up in a home, and there was only one rule, I would think that's a pretty good gig. Right? I guess it could depend on what the one rule is, but it's really not too difficult. You think, one rule? I can keep that. Now, anytime you play a game with my mom, she says there's only one rule in this game. Grandma wins. Right? She always, we seem to break that rule all the time. You know? But it's kind of easy to play a game or, or to be in a job where there's one rule. And God gave Adam one rule. Hey, all of these trees in this garden, you can eat of any of them. You have complete freedom except for that one right there. Just that one. Otherwise, everything else is good to go. That's the first thing we need to see. The second one is down in verse 23 through 25. God creates Eve. He, he takes a rib out of Adam, makes Adam go to sleep, does some surgery, creates Eve out of this rib. Adam wakes up, sees this woman, and he's pretty pleased. Here's his words. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want you to imagine it for a second. All right? Two people, they're in paradise. The climate's got to be pretty good if they're running around with no clothes. All right? So they don't have to suffer through Iowa winters. They've got all this food available to them. And they could try all sorts of things. But what do you want for dinner tonight? All right? They probably had to go through that, you know, argument. But I mean, they got everything available to them. And they have a perfect relationship with God. This image of God that is in them. It's that image of God that gives them spiritual life. They are in absolute communion with one another and with their creator. This is paradise. This is perfect. And it's all about to change. Now we get to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took one of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus yet, or maybe you struggle a little bit in this idea of the Bible, you're probably rolling your eyes. Because you're looking at it going, talking snakes? Like, really? Like, this is the stuff out of mythology. This is fable. I, I mean, personally, the only talking snake I've ever seen was in a Harry Potter movie. Right? I, I've never encountered a gardener snake and had a conversation. Like, this is not an everyday occurrence. And so I don't blame you a bit for kind of going, okay, talking snakes, this will be interesting. But if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably haven't balked a bit. You're probably just soaking this in, just going right with it. But I want you to think about it. A talking serpent, this is weird. Well, it's about to get even weirder. This snake, most biblical scholars believe, is Satan. We live in a world where 89% of Americans believe that there is a God, but only 68% believe that there is a Satan. So as soon as you start saying, okay, we're going to look at a talking snake. Oh, and by the way, that talking snake is actually Satan masquerading as a snake. It could cause a lot of people to go, okay, I'm checking this off. This, this is weird. I, I don't think I can hear any of this. These, these guys are kooks. So you're probably wondering, how am I going to handle this today? Well, I'm just going to put my cards out there on the table. I'm going to treat this as if this is Satan talking through a snake to Eve. Why am I going to do that? Because as I go into the rest of the scriptures, especially looking at Jesus, I see Jesus talk about the events of Genesis, including Genesis 3, as if they really happened, as if they were history. We see Jesus himself, this person that we admire and respect, even if we're not even Christians, He even teaches about watching Satan fall from heaven, knowing that Satan was a created creature, an angel, and yet he fell from heaven. And not only that, we see an entire chapter in the scriptures, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus has a conversation with Satan himself. 
So if Jesus is going to refer to Satan and treat Satan as if he really is real, then I am going to go with Jesus and just say, okay, I guess Satan is real. And if Jesus and the other biblical writers treat this story, even though it sounds like mythology, even though it sounds like fable, as actual history, as really happening, then I think I'm going to go with them as well. So today, we're going to look at it as if it really was a Satan talking through a serpent, having a conversation with Eve. Now, maybe all of that didn't convince you. That's okay. Because I think you can still get some things out of the story. I think there's some things here that can still impact you, even if you're still struggling with this mythology-like part of the story. All right. Now, Genesis 3 is an incredibly rich chapter. It's why a lot of people make the mistake of beginning their theology with Genesis 3. There's so much here. I should probably do just an entire like series out of Genesis 3. There's so much. So I'm going to cheat you today. We're going to actually like just take a rock and we're going to skip it across Genesis 3. We're going to glance through a couple of things. We're going to see it before we allow the rock to plunge deep where we actually see Jesus. All right. The first rock skip is there in verse 1. It's, it's when Satan sees Eve and he says to her, did God actually say? Think about it. It, it sounds like he's concerned, doesn't it? D- did God actually say you can't eat of any tree? I mean, what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to get food? This is kind of a mean God, isn't it? This is how gossip happens. It can sound like concern. Especially if you're a Christian, you'll put it inside of a prayer request. But it's gossip. Because what gossip does is it plants a negative thought virus in your head about someone else. And that's what Satan has just done to Eve. He's just planted a negative thought virus about God and his goodness. Did God really say? Now notice her reaction. This is our second rock skip. She, she comes to God's defense. In verse 2, she says, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But then in verse 3, oh, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But did you notice what she just did? She engaged in legalism. She added something that God never said, at least not that we have recorded. Because the reason we looked at Genesis uh, 2, 16 and 17 was so that we could see God telling Adam, hey, here's your one rule. Don't eat of this fruit. Nowhere do we see God saying, oh, and and don't touch it. Now, that's not a bad idea. I, I mean, if you're an alcoholic, it's probably wise not to hold the beer bottle. Okay, just keep it out of your hands. In fact, just stay away from the bar. That, that would help you out a lot. But there's nothing that says you can't hold a bottle because it's the alcohol inside that would affect you and cause you to make your stumbling again. Right? So touching the fruit, that wasn't the wrong thing. God never said that. But Eve tacked on something extra. Now, we don't know how she came to this conclusion. Maybe it was Adam. God gave the instruction to Adam. So when Eve was created, maybe Adam told her wrong. I mean, guys, we've never done that wrong, right? Maybe she just misheard it. Or maybe this is her own concoction in her head. Somehow trying to protect herself. So she, all right, we can't even touch it lest we die. But that gives Satan his opening. Because now he knows. If I can just get her to touch it, she won't die. And now, because she's touched it and, oh, I didn't die, now she's ripe to start thinking, maybe what else is God lying to me about? Parents, if you want to ruin the faith of your kids, just engage in legalism. 
tack on a bunch of extra things. Tell them all these things they can and cannot wear. Tell them how they have to have their hairstyle. Tell them the things they can and cannot watch. Do a lot of this stuff telling them this is how they please God. If you tack on a lot of those rules, I can guarantee you that one day they're going to break one of those and discover there weren't any consequences. And now they're going to begin to doubt your faith and their faith in Jesus. Keep the focus on Jesus. Keep it on his grace. If Jesus and his gospel is our impetus, we will want to do the right thing. But don't create these rules, making them think that somehow they can achieve God's pleasure. It looks like spiritual maturity, but it's not. It's actually immaturity. Don't make an Eve mistake. Don't start tacking these extra things on. Because it can be dangerous, as it is for Eve. Because notice next what uh, Satan does. He, he tricks her, so she actually grabs it and sees that it's good. All right? Now, third rock skip. Adam's location. Look there in verse 6. She takes the fruit. Uh, verse 6. She takes the fruit. She sees it looks great. It's to be desired. And so she takes and eats. And then notice the last phrase there. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam is right there. Now, maybe he was over in another tree when the conversation started. And here's Eve talking and he's thinking, who's she talking to? And he comes over. Maybe he was there the whole entire time. We don't know. All we know is he's right there. And yet he hasn't said anything. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't stepped up to help protect his wife or correct when she was wrong. He just stood idly by. I see this as often the sin of men. I even struggle with it myself. Guys, sometimes we just can sit idly by in front of our TV or on our phones. We can sit idly by out in the garage or at our workbench. We can sit idly by being out in the field hunting or, or putting in extra hours at work. We can just sit idly by letting our wife and our kids kind of fend for themselves. We don't want to get too engaged. And so we just kind of let them do whatever. Let's not commit the sin of Adam. Let's be like Jesus and let's engage in their lives. Let's be there for them. Let's be there with them. It makes all the difference in the world. Who knows how this story would be different if Adam had actually spoken up. But he didn't. He stands by. He lets the conversation roll. And he takes and eats himself. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, one of his pastoral disciples, he actually mentions this. And he says, you know what? In that story, Eve was deceived. It's almost like Paul's saying, you know what? We can't get too mad at Eve. Because, I mean, she, she did. She got deceived. She truly thought it was good. But Adam was not deceived. Adam's sin is even worse. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was not deceived. Yet he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. And he ate the apple. Now the fourth rock skip is when they actually sink their teeth into the fruit. Remember, it's absolutely perfect. Everything is great. They have a pure relationship with God, a pure relationship with one another. They live in this absolute paradise. They have never experienced pain or sadness or anger or regret or shame. And with one bite... As that fruit begins to slide down the throat, the throat begins to constrict, the stomach goes into knots, and they now have fear. I, I wonder if Eve's eyes suddenly teared up. Uh, she, it says they suddenly realized they were naked, 
I wonder if she suddenly like had body image issues and she hides and she ducks behind a tree and Adam does the same. And all of a sudden I think Adam's just grabbing his hair going, what have I done? What have I done? Could you imagine? They've never experienced any of that. And now it's flooded their entire being. The image of God that makes them so precious. Suddenly that moment was cracked and they felt it. Because the penalty for sin was death. And in that moment, they did die spiritually, instantly. God was their life force. And the image is now marred. It's broken. It's there, but it's not the same. That's when we see God show up. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, God, said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. If you, as you read this, you you start looking at God as being kind of like a man. It says he's walking in the cool of the day, and he's calling out for Adam. I, I don't want you to be fooled. God is God. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows exactly what has happened. He felt it. When Adam took of that fruit and bit into it, and the image was cracked within them, God felt it. He knows exactly what has happened. He's creating the space, the opportunity for them to run to him, to seek repentance, to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation. But instead, notice what they do. They don't seek reconciliation. They shift to blame. First, notice Adam. He has the audacity not only to blame Eve, but to blame God. He says, the woman that you gave me. As if to say, if you hadn't created her, none of this would have happened. All right. Strike one. So God just turns to Eve. All right, Eve, you're going to do it differently than Adam? What is this you have done? Instead of falling to her knees and confessing, she says, well, the serpent deceived me. So this proceeds to lead into three pronouncements of judgment, uh, these consequences for their sin. God speaks first to the serpent, then to, to Eve, and then finally to Adam. We unfortunately don't have time today unless you want to go until Thursday, but I kind of would like to watch the Super Bowl tonight. We don't have time. If you're going to be part of a growth group uh, this week, you'll have the opportunity to, to look a little deeper at the effects of sin. It, it is really kind of, not kind of, it is quite traumatic because you'll see how sin really infects and affects everything. But we do need to go into one of the pronouncements. We do need to look at, at one of these. And it's the pronouncement that God makes to the serpent. Because it's in this pronouncement that we are going to have our first glimpse of Jesus and see God's grace. And then we're going to see another one as well. So look there in verses 14 and 15 with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as you study prophecy in the Old Testament, you often discover that there's a dual layer to it. All right? Prophecy fulfilled two purposes. One was forth-telling to tell the people, hey, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's the message from God to help guide you and lead you. But there was also a part that was foretelling, saying, here's what God will do in the future. Sometimes it was, hey, if you don't change, here's what I'm going to do in the future. Or even if you do change, here's what I'm going to do in the future. Right? God was saying, here's what's going to be coming. Sometimes that would happen later that same day. Sometimes it could happen a week or some months later, a few years But with this dual layer, sometimes there would be a fulfillment of it within just a few years of the pronouncement of the prophecy, and sometimes then hundreds or even thousands of years later. Often there would be a prophecy where you could see it fulfilled here and now, but there was another layer where it pointed to Jesus. That's what happens right here. There is a dual layer. Many scholars believe this is the first prophecy ever to the coming of Jesus. And it's in the second half of that. After he kind of makes this pronouncement, which would help the earlier Jewish readers understand, here's why there's this like fear that exists between snakes and humans. Humans don't like them. Snakes don't like humans. You know, they kind of fight. Well, that's not true. Some people like them. I had a student in Venezuela who one day, I mean, we're in typing class at computers and he reaches into his backpack and all of a sudden pulls out a snake. And he just kind of lets the snake go around his arm. And I'm like, that's interesting. I wonder how many American... uh, School teachers have snakes in their classrooms where the students just pull them out of their backpack. Another one of my students, one day, he comes up to me and goes, oh, Mr. Bird, this was so cool. Three in the morning, I hear this high-pitched scream. My snake was catching onto the rat and was starting to eat it. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. Like, are you serious? So there are people that love snakes. I realize that. Most people don't. And this helps you understand why they don't like it. But as God is talking about this enmity that's going to exist between these humans and these snakes— something interesting happens. Suddenly God shifts from just talking in general to the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake and starts talking about you and he. And many people think that it's actually talking about Christ and Satan. The, the word there that's used for bruise in Hebrew, I learned this week that it, uh, it can mean, it really means to fall upon Uh, To fall upon. If if a poisonous snake were to fall upon your heel, especially before modern science, you would die. It would be fatal to you. You you might think, well, that's just your heel. You know, you can hobble around. But eventually, the poison is going to course through your blood, and and you're going to go down. But at the same time, a, a heel hitting down on the head of a serpent would probably be fatal to the serpent. And this is exactly what we see through the cross. When Jesus took on human flesh, Christmas, and lives this sinless life among humanity, Satan started thinking, this is my chance. If I can take down the Son of God, I win. I defeat the whole trinity. This is my opportunity. So he shows up in Matthew 4. I can tempt him. If he messes up, screws up, he's no longer God. I'm now in control. I'm in power. He doesn't win. And he starts trying and working eventually. I know, I'll take the jealousy of the Jewish leaders and I'll take the lust for power of the Romans and I'll have them kill him. And there it is. The serpent sticks its fangs into Christ and it's fatal. 
But the very event that Satan thought would cause him to win rebounded and it caused his defeat. Because it was through the cross that God brought full justification and paid for sin. Because remember, God wasn't fooling Genesis, uh, I mean, Genesis 2.17. That when Adam sinned, he would die. And so the penalty for sin was death. It's just that God allowed it to be taken by Jesus. And, and so through this one man, Adam, came sin. But through Jesus comes life. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 5. If you know where Romans is, feel free to flip to Romans 5. If not, don't worry about it. We're coming right back to Genesis 3. But Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, uh, Paul is writing to this church in Rome. And he starts telling them, uh, uh, well, he's actually started all the way back in chapter 1, just telling them about this gospel. If you want to know more about the gospel, just go and read Romans. And trust me, you'll probably need to read it multiple times. It's so thick and rich. It's like a doctoral thesis, but it's so good. And suddenly in chapter 5, he starts talking about this sin that came through Adam. And, and, and he begins this like, like a tennis volley. He starts saying that through Adam came sin, but through Jesus comes life. And he keeps doing it all throughout chapter, you know, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. And he works it down to verse 18. And this is where we're going to see it. Therefore, as one trespass, one sin, the sin of Adam, led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness, the cross of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Skip down to verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. Grace. Right there, when Adam and Eve sink their teeth into that forbidden fruit, there's grace. God already is saying, I've got this. I'm in control. Satan, you intended this for evil. You intended to ruin my creation. But I am going to thwart you. There will come a day when you will strike a human to kill him off But in that process, he will crush your head and he will win. Through Adam comes this sin, but through Jesus comes life. This isn't the only place we see God's grace. Right there in Genesis 3 is one more spot. Back in Genesis 3, it's in verse 21. Remember back in chapter, uh, uh, sorry, in verse 7, Adam and Eve, when they felt the, the sin, the shame, They ran off trying to to find fig leaves and sow them to make coverings. God wasn't fooling when he said the penalty of the sin was death. But notice what he does in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where do you think God got this skin? It was an animal. God, the creator of life, takes one of his creation and allows the punishment and penalty that Adam and Eve should have paid themselves and allows it to be transferred over to this innocent animal. And God kills it. And he takes the hide and he begins to fashion clothing to put it on Adam and Eve to cover them. This is exactly what God has done for us through Jesus 
Our sin was shameful. It keeps us separated from God. And yet Jesus, who was innocent, lived a completely sinless life, goes and willingly dies our death. And his righteousness is then put upon us. So that means that if you are a follower of Jesus, if there was a moment in time when you said, yes, I recognize Jesus' death on the cross was for me, it means that his righteousness, his purity, his perfection is now put upon you. Now, I realize you're still living with sin. You're wrestling with it. Every day you have moments where you think negative thoughts. You, you, you say something mean to someone. You, you just treat someone a, a little wrong. You, you just have these selfish moments. But yet, those moments can be forgiven. Because you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. Because of what he has done. It isn't about what you can do. It's what has already been done for you. You are covered in Jesus. This is why God is so passionate for you. His image is in you, and he wants to restore that. So he gave you clothing. He clothes you in love and grace and mercy so that you will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived and be a blessing to the world. Do you see it? Right here in Genesis 3, one of the most pessimistic chapters in all of the scripture, there's hope. Hope for us. So if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to invite you to say yes to him. To place your faith fully upon him. That you'd realize that his death on the cross was for your sin and that your sin is paid for. And that you can be covered with Jesus. And the image within you can be restored. And that you can go and love like Jesus loved. And live like Jesus lived. And be a blessing to the world. In a moment, we're going to pray. And I'm just going to create space in there for you to talk to God. And you can just kind of express to him, God, I realize that you love me because I'm made in your image. But yet I have sinned. And yet I now realize that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And so I accept that forgiveness. And so God, because Jesus gave his life for me, I now give my life to follow you. Make me more like Christ. If you're here today and you already follow Jesus, I think Genesis 3 should do two things for us. I think first it should humble us. Because it reminds us that we are sinners. That that we have been separated from our perfect, beautiful creator because of our selfishness. Because of these thoughts, these actions, these words At the same time, though, I think it should cause us to worship. Because even right here, we see God tells Satan, you think you've won. You actually lost. And we're reminded that Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, gave his life willingly so that his righteousness could come and cover us. And that should cause us to live in just worship and celebration of him. And not just on Sunday. And not just even for the rest of this week. This should be for the rest of our lives. Would you join me in prayer? God, I just pray that you would help us to live lives of worship. Because of this incredible thing that you have done for us. I pray that we would be motivated by the gospel. That we wouldn't try to attach legalistic rules into our life. Thinking somehow we can earn your favor. Because your image is in us. We are your children. So we already have your favor. And you forgive us. You've paid our penalty. 
We should have been the ones to die. Instead, Jesus, you took it for us. So Father, help us to be humbled by this, but also just to burst out, to exalt in worship because you are God and you are good and this shows you are in control. Father, I pray for anyone here today that has not bowed their knee before you, has not said yes to following Jesus, has not made you the center of their life. Maybe you've been a side thing for them. But right now you're saying, I love you. I want to be the center. I want to repair the image within you because you're my child. You're my creation. So right now, Father, I pray that you'd help them to pray a prayer like this. God, I realize that you love me. I'm made in your image, but I have sinned. And that sin has separated me from you. And yet you have paid the way. You've, you've bridged the gap that allows me to come back into a relationship with you, my creator. And it came through Jesus and the cross. So Father, I pray right now that if anyone has prayed that prayer, that your angels would just celebrate that but that we also as the church family would get to celebrate that as well. Help each and every one of us though, no matter where we are at on our spiritual journey, today, this week, continue to go deeper with you. And we would see Genesis 3 in a new way, realizing that, yeah, we're human. So we've sinned, but yet we're made in your image. And so you've done everything necessary to bring us back into a relationship with you. And may that lead us to worship you all week, all month, all of our lives. God, make us Jesus-centered people. Help us to be the church that goes and is an incredible blessing to this world that's out there. Because they need to know they're loved. They need to know they matter. They need to know their value. But they also need to know you've paid for their sin. So make us the ones to go with this good news. But may it first happen within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.